to, to, to kind of help. But like almost all the stuff will actually be done on DeFi. And that's kind of what was, I mean, I don't know if you could ever call like the, the Luna UST stuff fully DeFi, but uh, that's kind of what a lot of companies were doing, except they were charging just a massive like boomer fee. And instead of that, it'll be just like a, a very minimal, which will just be a purely UX fee and not well UX and knowing what you're doing and a whole bunch of dishonesty in between. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting view. I've I've had something similar kicking around my mind the last few weeks. I was listening to Eric Voorhees on Bankless talk about mm-hmm. Shapeshift and how they've decentralized that and this may have actually even been on other podcasts because I went down a Voorhees rabbit hole just listening to him because Shapeshift is now a essentially a Thorchain front end. It's a front end, a user-friendly front end for a bunch of decentralized exchanges. And I think for crypto to reach further than just the participants that we see now in DeFi, which are highly technically capable users who understand most of the layers of this tech stack, uh, for crypto to reach beyond that, it's going to have to have major UX improvements and not just UX improvements, but simplification and and uh, education around what these protocols are doing. And I see Eric as the forerunner of, you know, kind of like the, the, uh, the first person to have created one of these protocols that abstracts all of the the technicalities away from a DeFi protocol. So a user doesn't necessarily need to know how to use Thorchain or how Thorchain works. They can just go to Shapeshift, connect MetaMask or connect whatever wallet they want to copy paste their private key or public key. <laughs> don't mm-hmm. don't copy paste your public your private key. Yeah, um, of course. <laughs> and then uh and then just trade assets uh, in a decentralized way cross chain. And so, um, yeah, I definitely agree with you on that. I think, I think the uh, user experience needs to be simplified in a lot of these cases. Yeah, and I think it's happening really fast. I mean, obviously, this could be like the default DeFi rabbit hole sec- segment here, but like, I don't actually. I know of almost no Thorchain front ends. Almost every single one of them is a Thorchain plus you know, pancake swap plus, uh, what are they? Trader Joe, et cetera, like aggregator that just, you assume is Thorchain, but there's like all, all the, like the siloed, um, dexes are all kind of plugged in there too. And there's a Thorchain fork coming out, hopefully very soon called the Maya protocol, which is just very similar, except we'll have like a few, a few tweaks, but also some different assets. So if you're trading, like say, dash to litecoin and it might not be you're using a Thorchain branded like front end but it might be using maya for you know for that to then to Thorchain. it might be using a, a collection of these and it's it's surprising to me just how seem like dexes are very new um dex aggregators across chains where you can move seamlessly from one asset to another are even newer yet i'm really surprised at how good the ux has gotten so far just just based on like like tying what i would think would be a very complicated thing which is tying these things together and actually finding the the mo- the cheapest uh, route for a swap and you know it, it 
I hear that you'll be able to do stuff like um, do half of the trade across each of these networks because of like slippage to try to reduce slippage. And then you just don't even know that you're using two different blockchains to do this whole thing. You don't even know you're using any blockchains. You just hit swap in the wallet. It goes zoop. And we're, we're really close. And so that's why um, these CeFi uh, behemoths are going to end up starting to run into solvency issues over time, which is a great segue <laughs> into um, Huobi confirms 20% layoffs denies insolvency rumors. Uh, key Huobi execs, including Huobi Trading Group CFO Lily Zhang, allegedly left the company a few months ago following new shareholders' takeover. Of course, you know, Justin Sun's involved. And yeah, they basically, because of the bear market, et cetera, uh, confirmed that they're laying off 20% of their employees. They were also kind of unresponsive yesterday, which is a little, little scary. But yeah, they basically say, oh, we're still going to, we're still running. Everything's still fine. We're not going to go bankrupt. They just, we're going lean. But that came shortly after Justin Sun publicly addressed rumors of Wilby's insolvency, which in this little tweet thread here, where he's doing that, it's, um, he, he, it's a lot of like corporate word salad and take steps to protect blah, blah, blah. This is a security and all this kind of stuff. That's like, okay, why are you saying all this? Like it's a little, little suspect. And so this is definitely not a move on my part to spread FUD in any way, shape or form before anyone gets ahead of that. Um, I just, yeah, it, it just seems a little suspect, especially when so many, um, platforms have been kind of experiencing issues, um, at the end of the bear market. So, or, or in the middle of the bear market, I should say right here. I don't know what your, your hot take on that might be. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's anytime <laughs> kind of any news is bad news toward the uh, bottom of a bear market. It's mm -hmm. it. Anytime I see a headline like this, I'm, I'm like, Oh, here comes another one. This is another part of the contagion. And, um, one bites the dust. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think a lot, a lot of people's reaction is probably, the fear, you know, by default, just toward whatever news we're seeing, it's like we're we're automatically going to be thinking this is another another step downward. This is going to be another drop for Bitcoin and for whatever you know, whatever other tokens Huobi might have a lot of uh, if they're if they're insolvent, which I I don't tend to think they are. I my suspicion is that is probably just a standard exchange operating you know halfway across the world having delay in uh response time yeah i mean could be uh i do think that when you have well maybe this is a little a little harsh of a, a phrasing of that but when it's a bad sign when you're bought by justin son usually <laughs> usually he doesn't he doesn't buy like top like you know he, he buys name brand and stuff that he can when it's on a little bit on the struggle bus like like steam right the steam it i mean it was already kind of on the decline a little bit and then he he got steam it and then the whole steam blockchain ended up being being forked and you know hive is from what people i don't really use hive very much anymore but from what people use are telling me it's go it's doing great but it's not like you know it's not like the the bell of the ball anymore it's not on the top so it's like <laughs> if you get a, an offer to buy, you know, if your company starts getting offers from Justin Sun, um, <laughs> you might want to start like shopping around resumes. I don't know. 
yeah, we maybe uh, may may see a user activated soft fork of Huobi Exchange. <laughs> yeah, um, at some point it just I honestly like to that previous point about the the Dex and DeFi future. Um, it might just be that like the the crypto space grew so much and mm -hmm. a lot of businesses came into fill market demand but market demand flowed from cfi to defi so much that now the same businesses that have been built to a certain scale to deal with all this demand the demand's still there just not for them and they're starting to con have to con contract and that's one thing where um a lot of people were spreading around rumors of like Binance insolvency and things like that. And I mean, I do think that Binance probably was engaged in some, you know, shady things to make money or whatever. There's, but there might be some, something up, but I, I think that they would be one of the last to go. Not only the biggest is last, but also, uh, before this whole DeFi boom happened, they were already doing their own DeFi, so to speak, their seat DeFi, I guess, like the whole Binance chain stuff. And I didn't even understand why they had this token that they were using all over the place. That was before it became, you know, I guess sexy to have an exchange token that then tanks when there's a headline, but whatever. Uh, that And it seems like, you know, CZ is ahead of the game. He's always like a step ahead. Like he sees there being a giant threat to his business model. So he jumps in there so that if his old business crashes, his new business which is not really, I mean, technically a decentralized protocol, but let's be honest, like a business, then does really well and he's still okay. It seems his ability to pivot seems to be pretty pretty uncanny. Yeah, I think I think to your point that Binance may well be the last to go, and I would say the last of the uh, foreign exchanges that are not based in the U.S. Because I, I put Coinbase and Kraken up there way, way uh, outlasting outlasting Binance and some of these other exchanges, um, assuming regulation doesn't entirely shut them down. But um, I think Binance's biggest flex was <laughs> when Coinbase laid off something like 20% of their workforce and Binance CZ came in and said, we're hiring. Yeah. That was magnificent. And, um, you know, you look at that, you look at how he essentially just pulled the last... Jenga piece, Jenga block from mm -hmm. FTX, and, uh, and you gotta assume he's he's got something more than meets the eye. I mean, he's just a very intelligent guy, and yeah. um, so I think he probably will be the last exchange standing. Yeah, and I can't think of a single Binance move that I would think is like dumb or a naive or something like everything seems to be very well thought out. I'm sure there've been plenty of faux pas along the way, but like they seem to be very well couched at least like yeah. seeing that the DeFi boom is coming, seeing that it's ETH only, or that's, that's where it hits first and being like, well, we can see it's getting expensive. We can see that people don't care that much about decentralization, but there is a good market for cheap. So, you know, in the spirit of the old, like, Chinese knockoff, right, he makes the, the, his version and fills, a, fills a, a customer demand there. And, of course, people are looking for Coinbase competitors, and they do Binance US. And there's a lot of, um, despite supposedly being completely separate entity, which is, you know, what you have to do, I guess, to, to thrive in the US, 
there's a lot of evidence that points to commingling of funds between Binance and Binance US, which they're not supposed to be doing, but they're probably doing anyway. And just like do the satellite thing there. And then as far as um, one of the most frustrating things for someone like me who tries to use crypto as much as I can has been just the lack of um, spent. It's becoming a little bit easier to spend these days. But the lack of merchant tools has been insane. Like, there's a bunch of e-commerce tools that are kind of like half-baked, but point-of-sale yeah. ones really are not that good at all. And right. Binance Pay and the Binance, like the, the merchant tools, seem to be making huge, like, progress. And it's just like, oh, like everything that they're in seems to be, you know, it's like don't count CZ out. So, I think as long as he's healthy and like running the ship there's going to be a strong feature in the Binance stuff. And he just seems too, like, you know, too well-versed, well too, I guess, too humble and ruthless at the same time, where, <laughs> you know, he's not going to do these these big splashy ads. Like, I have to admit, the Coinbase QR code ad during the Super Bowl was really kind of dumb, where, you know, <laughs> that was a huge waste of money. Instead of that, he's hiring, you know, picking everything up on the cheap. And at the same time, he knows how to destroy a competitor when he needs to. Like, it seems like I wouldn't count on them going anywhere in the near future. Yeah, CZ reminds me of Sam Walton. Like, I think, and Walmart in general as, a, as a, an analog to Binance from traditional business world, where they're expanding laterally everywhere. I mean, they just, they... I think the best the best example of this and the, the most impressive thing I've seen from Binance over the years is how they've added additional functionality to their token and none of it is strictly necessary, but mm -hmm. they've found ways to integrate their token to make it accrue value very well, uh, considering that it's a completely centralized coin. Um, so the BNB, I'm talking about the BNB token and how they've gone from 50% discount on trading fees on Binance back in 2018, 2019. And to they were briefly doing a pilot of a different chain. It was like Binance chain, and now they have Binance smart chain. Mm -hmm. And um, they're using it as uh, you know, collateral for different things within that protocol. So it's just, it's got, um, they're really good at value capture. And Binance, ironically, has some of the best tokenomics but its fatal flaw of course is that it is a centralized exchange and um and ultimately depends on on that and the brand of binance as a, a centralized entity and that could change but uh to speak to their you know i think the one thing i take issue with binance about as a centralized exchange is their fractional reserve of certain coins so mm. i've I know for sure this is happening with Monero, and I have seen suspicion that they're doing this with Bitcoin Cash as well. And um, and it makes sense, you know, it makes sense, especially with Monero, where you can you can't you can't show proof of reserves for Monero without giving away the view key. So yeah, it's uh, almost it's almost stupid to not in a certain weird way. Yeah, definitely, and and so I have a whole long thought on this but um in, in short binance uh binance is able to get away with that because they're the biggest exchange and so again last you know potentially the last exchange standing but if there is something that's going to take down binance it's going to be a bank run 
on however many deposits they're fractionally reserving there. Yeah, and I do believe the Monero community tried to do a bank run on them at one point recently. Yeah, the problem is like no one cares. Like Binance can just freeze withdrawals for <laughs> a week and, and they uh, did, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, they did. They did as soon as ahead of the bank run actually, ahead of Monero. I wrote a an article on this. I, I wrote maybe two articles on this. But um what I would so from a as a as a free market you know, a proponent of free markets, I would actually love to see exchanges, this is my hot take for the day, I would love mm -hmm. to see exchanges be allowed to fractionally reserve things because that would, uh, that would introduce the, that would introduce competitive forces in, in the market. And the, um, the thing that I would like most about it for Monero is Monero has what I call a price floor. So uh, there is a price at which Monero will bounce on exchanges. The, the price of Monero will bounce if it dips below this price floor because Monero needs to be worth a certain amount of money to facilitate all of the transactions that it does. So uh, the dark web has, you know, let's say $100 billion flowing through it. And half of that is in Monero, more than half now because Monero is, you know, of the crypto denominated traffic more than half is in Monero. And uh, so Monero has to be worth, let's say, in aggregate $50 billion divided by the number of times each coin is used. So if you say Monero is used 50 times, uh, each Monero on average is used 50 times a year, then you divide that into the $50 billion figure and you have a billion dollars uh, for the value of all circulating Monero and divide the number of coins there and you have what I call a price floor, the intrinsic value of Monero based on its use in commerce. So fractionally reserving, the Binance's fractional reserve is actually keeping the price of Monero suppressed uh, and keeping it relatively close to its price floor. This is, this is what I've been seeing over the last few years and uh, looking at how stable Monero is, it makes sense. So in a way, I'm actually happy that Monero is fractionally reserving uh, the Binance is fractionally reserving Monero because it's keeping the price stable, which helps adoption, which helps real cryptocurrencies with a real value proposition um, get adopted in the world, uh, especially in this, in this dark net um, arena where Monero is, is very well suited. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of an interesting take on the whole like price floor type thing. I have noticed that this has been the the year of the price floor or this maybe not this year because there's not very much year but the last one uh, i've definitely noticed uh, there's been a few coins like the more speculative coins have had a lot more you know bounce and that's what been one of the more fascinating things about bitcoin is bitcoin used to be the safest haven and now it's it's a little more speculative a little more up a little more down than others and like there's a few like Monero and Litecoin have been the big ones, but also like Bitcoin Cash, Dash, Zcash have done well against Bitcoin during the bottom of the bear market, which it's supposed to not be that way. It's supposed to be Bitcoin is a bear market darling. But then like, and then a lot of these coins have also jumped dozens of places in the market cap rankings, despite not really going up in value that much, because there's like the base utility value that it just can't really go below and everything else, just the bottom's falling out of it and just kind of going away. And um, yeah, exactly. The same thing on, I'm sure 
you know, Binance on Binance Smart Chain or whatever, I'm pretty sure that if people try to dump that to oblivion, there's only so there's not much give there probably just because of just how much is running and dependent on that. But uh, that's probably um, maybe we get like uh, 15 minutes and then talk about the deep parts of the tokenomic stuff. Let's hit sure. on this um, uh, Genesis. Oh, God. I'm not sure if you saw this drama, but Genesis tells its clients it needs more time on financial woes after Gemini demands action. And this has been a very strange thing because um, Digital Currency Group has is kind of like the the elephant in the room as far as you know the big the big the 800 pound gorilla or whatever you want to call it. Um, and it's kind of funny about the all the the suits of crypto, whether it's the Brian Armstrong, the Wiggle Voss twins. Um, you know, Silbert, Barry Silbert and all them are all like the gentleman's club of like, you know, everyone always has conspiracy theories against and all that kind of stuff that are, but they're all like, you know, polite and tight and kind of tight lipped on drama. And here we have an interesting case where, um, Genesis, which is what, you know, behind Gemini's lending protocol or lending product, I should say, um, you, it goes bust and, now you have the Winklevoss twins, or you know Cameron, I believe, just doing a public spat against Silbert, saying you owe us like a billion dollars. Like it was a little, a little wild. Have this this whole thing back and forth, but um, yeah, it's kind of funny to see like the parent company of Gemini getting yelled at by Gemini over this kind of stuff. It's a, it's very like it's it's a crack we don't usually see in that sort of like iron fortress of the the suit part of us crypto. Um, I don't know what you, what you think about all that. Yeah. I, I gotta believe this was like their last resort. I'm sure they've pursued mm-hmm. all of the other avenues based on how professional these guys usually, usually keep mm-hmm. themselves. Um, they, the first sign for me that Genesis might have a problem was our Gemini might have a problem was, was back in, I want to say November, there were triple digit, yields for uh, or tri- triple digit requirements for borrowing GUSD their stable coin and those were they spiked a couple times but there was a maybe a two week period where it was 150% uh, to borrow the GUSD and so uh, on Ave which uh, has the largest I believe the largest liquidity for GUSD what that told me was there's probably someone with an open short position on GUSD expecting it to blow up any day at that point because you wouldn't keep 150%. You wouldn't pay that for something that you think might happen in the distant future. There there were people with millions of dollars that were expecting Gemini to fall apart imminently. So uh, it seems like maybe they weathered a a small or maybe (laughs) they weathered a large crisis uh, internally. And this is the consequence of that so my suspicion would be that they knew as early as november that this was a problem uh, but now it's you know it's come to this that they're they're airing their dirty laundry in public as uh, kind of a, a last resort to get barry to pay up <laughs> yeah and uh i wonder like it sounds like he doesn't have the money or he doesn't have that money i should say and it's it's got to be maybe he's kind of like doesn't want the rest of the empire to have a cascading effect if he has to start selling or re, you know 
shuffling around some assets to like make this one thing whole. And so he's just like, you know what? Let's just leave these people out to dry. And this is the least of the damage to my empire that I can sustain. It's probably kind of what he's trying to do. Can you imagine if Barry had to sell some of those more illiquid assets that he holds? Like Z Classic and Zen Cash? Yeah. I, it um, would completely liquidate all the order books. I know. Um, I mean, first off, who, who has Z Classic? Who cares about Z Classic? <laughs> <laughs> no offense, but like, it's literally just a copy and paste of Zcash, except you don't fund the development. And, and you see like, you see what that gets you. Yeah. And um, also, like, uh, Horizon, Zencash, or whatever, um, I, I'm i not super deep on them. I have had uh, Rob Viglione on my podcast a few di- different times, and it seems like they're working on some cool stuff. That being said, um, I have heard some DCG employees speak ill of the the situation i guess with zencash who just you know it's a like basically you know it there's a little bit of propping up going on i guess and so if you could like any relatively illiquid asset you just yeah i just can just destroy that and then all of a sudden like if you sell a little bit of it then the rest of it's gone and it's right you know, it's like you're pawning your possessions to to pay the rent it's like Ugh. It's like, well, what if you could just not pay the rent this month? <laughs> just push it off to the next month, you know? Yeah. Well, this is this is kind of the position that FTX was in as well, where they had illiquid assets marked as liquid on their books. So FTT was marked to market. And so on paper, they might have been able to pay off some of the debts that they had, or they might have been able to pay back customer. Uh, at least they had on paper the assets that they needed to to pay back customers to make customers whole. But in reality, the value of FTT and the value of all of the Zencash and the Z Classic that that Genesis might hold is not what they would account it for on their books. Yeah. And the thing is, um, FTX was many like layers worse than that, of course. With like, I don't even know if they had, I mean, I guess that's the optimistic claim is that they had illiquid assets to cover their listed as liquid positions. There's a lot of like not having money that they had too, which, you know. Yeah, I mean, I I can. It's gnarly. Yeah, we could go down some some rabbit holes with FTX, but uh, yeah, yeah, that might be. um, What else was in the news this week, FTX wise? Yeah, that was the the last little thing here was in an. FTX thing, which I think was hilarious. Uh, Sam Bankman Fried's lawyers claim he needs Robinhood shares to pay for his criminal defense. <laughs> the legal team confirmed the U.S. Department of Justice was in the process of seizing the Robinhood shares, but said SBF was compelled to reply given other claims. They, they filed a motion that basically they wanted to stop the the shares from being seized. Uh, supposedly, he owned more than 450 million worth of shares. And he's like, well, I can't defend myself without it. And it's, oof. I mean, that's a that's a tough spot to be in for, for <laughs> old for all the for the bank man, for a former billionaire. Yeah, but I mean, four hundred fifty million is not a small chunk of change, even if it's illiquid. You could get a lot out of that, right? Oh wow, yeah. I just I just registered that. 
He has yeah. 450 million worth of shares. Yeah. Now, I don't know if that's personal, right? If that's he owned or he mm -hmm. held title to, because that would be, well, that's like half a billion right there almost. And like that seems for, I mean, he was a, on paper at least, a multi billionaire, but I don't think that most of that was in, or such a significant chunk would be in Robinhood shares. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, it is kind of funny also. Um, it's in an, it, it's completely different than like the Celsius situation where you have a person who um, the company lost money and lost the customer money and all this stuff, but the individual's own assets, as far as I know, the, you know, are not like suspect. They're, they're, they're clay, they're acquiesced to be his assets to do with as he pleases so far. Whereas when you're involved in a, a, not just losing money, but a fraud, a direct stealing of customer money to the tune of like 900 million or more, like a ton of money. Then at that point, anything you have up until that amount, I'm sure is in possibly in excess of, right. Is just considered like not yours anymore. Like maybe not like, well, let's wait for the case to be over. And so it's unfortunately he, um, in it, if this was a, a different case, like this, it, it kind of highlights some issues with the justice system. Whereas like if someone wanted to really screw you, they could just allege that you were, that you stole the, and therefore all your assets that you need to defend your, your innocence are then not able to be used towards the defense of that innocence. And you do need a lot of money to defend against a high profile case. So in that case, yes. But in the case of homeboy here, I mean, I don't think, I think, you know, I think it kind of makes sense in this individual case. Yeah. Yeah. This is like the white collar equivalent of being arrested for resisting arrest. Like they're going to freeze your assets so you can't defend, defend yourself. And in this case, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I wouldn't say I'm glad they did this to Sam. I have a, I think I, I, it's not that I'm glad that they did this to Sam. I don't think Sam is, I think he's either going to get Epstein or Ghislaine. I don't think Sam is the guy behind all of this. I think there are other people that are behind the FTX fraud. And FTX was probably funding a lot of things that we're already familiar with, but that no one cares to talk about anymore. And that's my, that's, and that's the extent that I'll, uh, that I'll, that I'll share that, but that's my hot take on FTX. It's like, it almost doesn't even matter if Sam um, gets, like, I think whatever they throw at him, he's going to be fine. That's my my public prediction, is that Sam's going to get off light, no matter what that means. Yeah, I I don't know. And it's, it, everyone likes, I'm going to have to make a prediction because, you know, I have to, I guess, but like, I, I also predict that I don't know. First and foremost, I don't know how it's <laughs> going to happen, what's going to happen. Uh, but I'll, I'm leaning, I'm starting to lean towards um, he's going to get it hard. Whereas in the beginning, at first I thought when this crashed, I'm like, oh, this guy's toast. And then he was out running around free for so long and so many media puff pieces came out about him and all this stuff. And then I was like, oh no, he's going to get away with this. And then... I think he did. He screwed it up. Did too much media. 
and then the powers that were supporting him just were like, you know, screw this guy, let him fall. Because as far as like the FTX situation, which I think there's a lot of situations under that umbrella, the actual exchange and its fraud and the man in charge of that is one such situation. I also believe that he would never have been able to get to this position if it weren't for a lot of uh, a lot of help from a lot of high-powered friends. And that's a different situation. So him getting to that that spot and buying off, like being the guy, the chosen one with all these, with you know a lot of support, raising capital, etc., and then running on hard times, of course they're going to circle the wagons and help their guy who's funneled a lot of money into their campaigns and things like that. The, the problem is I think he went off script I think he, he didn't just run the biggest or one of the bigger exchanges, I should say. He didn't just do that. He also went on his crazy like meth bender parties and stuff and like <laughs> just did really dumb stuff. Like he, he did stuff that his backers were not. He did wild card things, right? Where it's just like he screwed up so much. Um, I'm sure there's a, I can't remember off the top of my head which character, but there's one of them in The Godfather. It was the same way, kind of like he screwed up too much, and now they have to like wash their hands of him. And I, I kind of get the feeling that they're they're getting ready to do that. that they're like, he used to be our guy, but now it's he started like he screwed up so big that now he can't. I don't think he's our guy anymore. I think we got like same thing with Epstein, right? Epstein was their guy, but then I think it became it was too much. To where they're just like, you know what? He's not our guy. And if he's going down, he's really going down. Although, I think the worst that F that SBF did, um, as far as like influence peddling, is already public information, kind of, as far as he funneled money to these things and met with the White House and a bunch of stuff like that. But as far as like, I don't think he was involved. Like, I don't think that that knowledge coming out is going to sink anyone the way like the Epstein client list would definitely sink everyone, like so many people. So he's probably going to be allowed to be just tossed. I'm leaning towards, again, either one, neither one would really surprise me, but I'm leaning towards they're going to throw away the key and people are going to like not, or they're going to try to. Maybe he's going to get like, you know, 10-year suspended sentence or something. I don't know, who knows what it's going to get, but he's going to get something big and people are going to wash their hands of him and just kind of move on. I could see that, but the, the thing that stands out in my mind, first of all, I don't think that Sam was going too far off script with the meth-fueled parties. <laughs> I'm not sure that his, that his, um, that his, uh, the, the, the beneficiaries of his donations are above that. Um, mm. The other thing, though, that stands out to me is he, people claim that he lost several billion dollars having all of the advantages that he had where he could trade against all of his customers, he could front run, he could do all of these, all of these things because he had essentially perfect information on the market. Mm -hmm. And yet they're still saying, you know, the, the news is still that he came up short by $5 billion or whatever, whatever that figure is. I just don't believe that. I think I, if you have that much of an advantage over the market, it is essentially impossible to lose money, even for someone that's having meth-fueled parties like Sam was. Um, yeah. And so I, I wonder where that money went. That's, that's my framework. That's my lens that I have toward this. And so I'm thinking, well, where, 
where could that money have gone? And in the in the um, in, a, in a post Epstein world, I think there's um, there's significant demand for that kind of uh, that kind of money laundering. Yeah, there could definitely be. I mean, I'm sure a lot of it went to Ukraine. There was that like offer of like giving money to Ukrainian traders and stuff on the site, and, which is a great cover for like a lot of money going through there. Um, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure a lot of that disappeared. Um, there's a, it's also like never underestimate the ability for government entities, which he was not really, but you know, there's some similarities, I guess, as well as just degens to just lose copious amounts of money with nothing to show for it. And so like, if you're trading at a loss all the time, or not all the time, but a lot of time, you're trading enough at a loss, and then you have to pay all the exp like if all the expenses, like the big splashy ads, the infrastructure, the employees, everything, regulations, everything they had to go through. An if arena. Yeah, if all that stuff, if you're just breaking even, then all that is loss, and then it just takes a couple of bad trades to just turn you into that situation plus a few like yachts so i'm sure like there was a lot of money went through i don't know if there was like i think he could still this could still have just been everything that he was put in that position to do he actually did dutifully but just all the other stuff he just like fumbled the ball so spectacularly and it's not like the it's not like the meth is the problem Right. It's just that <laughs> when you do, it's just that the meth influence decisions might be the problem where a, a person of that age, especially and that, I guess, sociopathy that like that just doesn't have the self-control to steal in the proper way, you know, have the deal, <laughs> just just has to take it too far and then, you know, ends up losing everything. So, yeah. you know, it's quite possible. Around. He who rides a tiger may not easily dismount. So it's kind of, <laughs> kind of where where he ended up. Uh, That's my yeah, new so, favorite quote. What the tiger one? Yeah, I've never heard that. That's fantastic. Yeah, but it is true that once you you get in deep on some things, you know, I kind of view the same thing about like the whole crypto world. Like, you know, I'm sure you do too with the whole eat sleep crypto thing. Once you're in it you don't just like hire <laughs> in crypto. It just doesn't happen. Right. Right. It's true. It's true. It's uh, it becomes, I don't know. Crypto is kind of like a drug in that sense. Like it's, it is the most interesting thing and it might always be the most interesting thing. There's just so many rabbit holes to dive down mm -hmm. in crypto that you will never exhaust the, you'll never exhaust all of, of the mental, you know, I guess the rabbit holes, like they're just more of them. And, um, and that's something I've found in the last two years, I think crypto has become, and I'm, I'm actually grateful for this bear market because crypto has become so, uh, so broad. There are so many different protocols and innovations going on in every different area of crypto. That's hard to pay attention when you're just focused on one or two, you, it's so tough to keep track of all of them. So, mm -hmm. And the bear market is kind of a nice respite from from that. Yeah, especially if you have to pay attention to quality projects versus not quality projects. At least there's only quality left right now. And it just right. they're not all going to make it. Not all the quality is going to make it, but at least it's not like 
crap. And uh, part of the reason I think it's a rabbit hole is it's kind of everything. It's kind of the everything of the future. And mm. so it's it's kind of like saying, you know, the Internet's a rabbit hole. But mm. then, like, what isn't the Internet today? Like, mm. is there anything that isn't the Internet? Like, not really. I mean, unless you live in a cabin in the woods, and even then you have to get your Wi-Fi from somewhere. So mm. it's, uh, it's kind of like the same thing where, like, everything is being, like, redone through a crypto lens or sort of yeah definitely definitely i like that take um crypto i think is going to be one of those i I see actually been thinking about this and i haven't quite articulated it yet but i think crypto is one of three emerging technologies that are going to dominate the next 10 20 potentially 100 years and those are and, and they have like a balancing effect with each other those are crypto artificial intelligence and quantum mechanics via mm-hmm. consciousness. So you have crypto, which is uh, you have AI, which is kind of like a sword. It's a, you know, potentially dangerous weapon. You need to learn how to wield it. Uh, it has all these kind of parallels. Crypto is a shield. So cryptography and cryptocurrency are both um, uh, defense, you know, defense systems, which are asymmetrically powerful. So there, it, it takes a lot less to defend than it does to attack. And then you have quantum mechanics and consciousness, which are essentially like a magic wand. And um, what we've seen in quantum mechanics and in, in some studies is that the people and their emotions can influence random number generators uh, at scale. And, um, and so there, there's kind of like an interplay between these three technologies that are all that all have tons of rabbit holes themselves, but um, but there's going to be like a balancing effect. I think those three are going to kind of play rock paper scissors for the next few decades. This is yeah, the infrastructure of the future of the human race, kind of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a good way to put it. They're all they're all going to be at the base layer of the infrastructure stack. Yeah, and that's kind of um, like. It's kind of interesting how like crypto is the, it's like the the gas, so to speak, of the world. It's mm. uh, kind of, and I've been kind of thinking about what makes crypto so unique and crazy. And it's like, why would like I'm not like a finance guy, but like why do I get so into this digital money stuff? And a lot of it is just because it's finally like a decentralized digital tech that works. And the reason it works because the other stuff just didn't have an engine behind it. And like the engine of like the tokenomics of it, right? The the actual value transfer associated with things. Because one thing that decentralized systems were not really good at before is allocating resources correctly because they didn't have price mechanisms. And so you have people like running stuff like Mastodon and like where's how do you know how to create a good user experience? How do you know how to like provide enough bandwidth for users how do you know how to like design it like where's the money design it better just ends up being kind of like left out there and no one knows what to do with it whereas like i don't think anyone needs to figure out how you're going to make the infrastructure of bitcoin work for example because it does just people build mining farms and i mean there's a bunch of nuance especially in the modern day and the the small lock bitcoin and stuff i'm sure but like there's a lot of um, (laughs) It, the, the base idea it just works. It's like the transactions run because they're paid to do it. The coin supply is distributed this way. The 
the security model infrastructure just like it's a self-contained thing that just grows as long as you know you have people using it and then you have all the crypto systems work because they're funded and they're funded internally they're self-funded and it's kind of um it, that's kind of what makes everything work and like any decentralized system i think in the end is going to need a like a value tokenized element to just run sustainably yeah i i tend to think that's the case too i mean this is diving into my area of expertise tokenomics and i think tokenomics are everything because incentives if you look at charlie munger has this great quote he says uh show me the incentive and i will show you the outcome and and that's taught me that and a few other people have taught me that i want to be focused on the incentives of what makes something happen in a system rather than just the uh, surface the superficial results of that system one thing that you're talking about the way i would describe what you what you just described is those are emergent properties mm -hmm. and so you don't just like a free market like the thing the thing that fascinates me about crypto is uh, similarly to a free market there are emergent properties that you can't necessarily predict on the other side of a on the other side of a process like if you set a process in motion you might not know necessarily how that's going to play out um, but yeah I mean crypto that that emergent property I think is the most interesting thing about crypto yeah so what about like tokenomics and stuff um, that's something like because I do come from like an not a finance background from like an econ background and that's kind of what got me into you know I got into sound money and then digitally scarce sound money this is kind of next uh, but so so I view a whole lot of um, I take a lot of value in these kinds of things now uh, so what do you think about like first off what do you think about Bitcoin's original design tokenomic model not necessarily small small block bitcoin because that's a little, that, changed, that changed the game a little bit for now yeah but i mean so what do you think of that that design what does it do right and what doesn't it i mean and i'm not saying like spend an hour doing this because i understand <laughs> this is a huge amount you know just of, of stuff to talk about in a short period of time but yeah 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 i um i love i love uh big block Bitcoin's original design. I think it's one of the most beautiful things ever created. I think it was like the, one of the best inventions of all time. I, I was saying this the other day, I'm like, I'm preaching to the choir here, but Bitcoin was seriously one of the best things ever invented. Um, mm. And that's because the incentives were perfectly, I won't say perfectly, but they were almost perfectly balanced for, and I guess perfect for the, the kind of system that a, big block Bitcoin could evolve into. Like there are definitely some issues like privacy and things like that. But um, overall, like the design of Bitcoin was incredible. And, and Bitcoin's design and what it meant was what got me into crypto in the first place. I was, I was drawn in by this system that regardless of whether I wanted to promote it or not, would end up taking over the world because yeah. of the economic incentives and not because of any kind of proselytizing that I would do as a as an activist or anything like that. All, all I would need to do is rely on people to be self-interested as they are and 
participate in the system because it was more profitable for them to do that than it would be to shut the system down. And so Satoshi's initial assumptions about um, you know, nation states and how they might behave in in a in a, an economic system like this turned out to be correct. I mean, we've seen Bitcoin's gotten this far and there hasn't been a malicious 51% attack. I think that's most likely because the Bitcoin's initial assumptions were correct. Yeah. I mean, that's for sure. Uh, it's kind of interesting how obviously when you have the, the fee revenue doesn't come in because of, you know, lack of scaling and it doesn't seem like the fee per transaction has scaled to where the fee for total number of transactions would have. Mm -hmm. And at some point that becomes where that like beautiful that it hasn't been 51% attack thing starts to become a little bit less confident yes. at that juncture. And I would kind of posit that the reason it got that way was because of a, a deficiency in the otherwise elegant and beautiful tokenomic design which comes to, uh, first of all, uh, I guess twofold. The minor, the minor one is the the lack of incentivized full nodes, and because of that, I mean, obviously you got mining nodes, right? But as far as like other nodes, uh, one of the biggest concerns that caused or the narratives, at least, that drove Bitcoin small block was its node centralization. And if you incentivize nodes through the protocol itself. You won't necessarily have outside actors coming in to to kind of run stuff where you have like a collection of companies that run most of the infrastructure on top of the Bitcoin network. And then you have to worry about them having other things they do if the system would pay those people. But the big one, of course, is the governance mechanism and developer funding mechanism, which saw, you know, I mean, there's obviously a ton of controversy around exactly what happened with the block size wars, but there's a lot of like, influence in a certain direction by people employed by companies who would benefit from that certain direction taking place. And so that kind of, that one little chink in the armor, right? it's kind of interesting how that, that sort of ties together the tokenomic picture of one little incentive off causes the beautifully running system to start to like turn into something that doesn't quite run that same way. Yeah, yeah. And, and that was one of those that I think... It might have been possible to anticipate in advance. On the other hand, I wonder if Satoshi hadn't put in the block size limit back in whatever 2011 or so, 2012, I wonder if the small block movement would have succeeded or would Bitcoin have turned into Bitcoin SV or Bitcoin Cash? Uh, I don't know. I was in the, I was in the, Bitcoin. I was in the big block camp and then later jumped into the Bitcoin cash community. So we were on the same size of the block size debates. And, yeah. um, but yeah, that, I mean, essentially what you're describing is paying nodes for, there were two things there were, you know, paying nodes for storage because the argument was that, uh, nodes would, it would become too expensive to run a full node because you'd need to store terabytes of data, which Obviously, you know, there's not, it's not, it's kind of a non-issue because it doesn't cost that much to do. Um, but there were other problems with that argument and I always felt like it was a superficial one. Um, and then the second thing was, was governance. And so um, that the 
the argument against I'm a governance minimalist and I advocate what are called hyperstructures. So hyperstructures are persistent protocols where the incentives are set up upfront and those protocols are not changed over time. So I think it's extremely important to get the protocol correct from the beginning rather than trying to adjust it in motion later. It's, it's not only more difficult to adjust, um, and get consensus around that and, and everything that entails. But it's also, it is, um, it's a, it's a security vulnerability. So you can have people taking over your protocol. If you have, uh, if you leave the protocol changes subject to a vote or, or a group of decision makers. Yeah. I mean, that's, I'm definitely a minimalist on a lot of these things. Um, there's a lot of bells and whistles and everything. That's one of the things that kind of, um, sort of loses me a little bit with the whole Ethereum ecosystem, even though I understand it's probably the number one player in the space. It's, even though the market cap hasn't eclipsed, eclipsed Bitcoin yet, it's clearly in terms of activity and stuff. But there's a there's a lot of like over complexity in the Ethereum structure where just so many different things can go wrong, and I'm not really a fan of like pushing everything to L2. And not like a not like well designed L two, just like <laughs> like po- well like pot like as much as I use Polygon, and it's like the front runner kind of like that's it's not a very well designed system. If Polygon, I just do it on Polygon is your answer. And uh, but as as far as like the governance thing, um, I am also a governance. I would say a governance minimalist. Once you have it, like you have to have. It's the emergency switch that you have to throw sometimes, and because sometimes you hit you hit a dead like a you hit like an impasse, and that's kind of what happened with Bitcoin. I do think, I do agree that without that, one of the biggest um, arguments in favor of small block Bitcoin became the "let's not change anything" argument, and where it just became like they, the they. The small box size won, I don't think on the strength of their arguments or on the community, but I think on the strength of a defensive position of like, don't really change anything major, even though I would argue that SegWit changed more than a simple block size increase would, but on on the whole, I do Mm -hmm. think that that's true. On the other hand, at some point you do run into decisions like Bitcoin Cash didn't have a block size limit or I mean did, but like it didn't have any any problem from that yet or it wasn't you know it was the plan was always to increase it and then started running into other governance issues um i mean i don't know how much of a governance issue i'd say the bsv that's, that's a, <laughs> a special case but then the cash yeah. was definitely a different uh governance issue but it was more of like a, a fork off than a um you know but but i would say as long as there's a mechanism just it's extremely simple and you only use it when you need to. And so like, for example, like my greatest exposure to governance, of course, has been deep involvement with the Dash community since 2016. And I'm just thinking about all the governance votes that happened. There's very few, there was one in the January 2016, which just decided, are we big block or small block? And so that got decided like early on, no one had to deal with that. And then hmm. there've been a few over the years that are usually unpopular which are like fire this guy and like no man they don't like that one or like you know what the one was recent was like let's 
because of regulatory pressure, let's disable the advanced privacy feature. And that one just got, got smashed too. But that was at least a, a, a decision that people had to you know, come to. And there have been a few other ones. But usually it's like, there have been a few small ones, like should we structure this thing this way that I don't think needed to be a governance decision, but just whatever. But mostly it's just like every, a major governance decision every several years. And it's not even that major. It's not like, you know, a block size split level of a, a decision. And yeah, I agree that mostly don't do governance, <laughs> but you need to be able to for that emergency switch because I think in the block size war situation, um, if you could have just put stakeholders, you know, the I guess which is, there's a million different forms of governance, but if you could put stakeholders, which is the most pure, I guess, uh, the most maybe simple uh, form of go like stakeholder, um, if you'd put them to a vote, it probably big block would have won, I think by a decent margin. I don't know if it was like overwhelming, but by a, a noticeable margin is what I think. And then we would just moved on with big, big block Bitcoin and that would have been a thing. But because there wasn't that emergency switch, I think we ended up with problems. Yeah, I see that some form of governance makes sense for L1s. And mm -hmm. I'm not sure what that form of governance should be. I think, you know, I, this, this is another, this is going to be a hot take, but I actually think mm -hmm. Vitalik's position in Ethereum is great. I think the the fact that people will listen to Vitalik on many, if not he most issues, yeah, I think I think that's fine um, because of because of the number of decisions that Ethereum has yet to make about scaling, and because of the fact that you know Vitalik is who he is, and he's had such a track record so far. I think there's that's that's kind of like the best system of governance for ethereum right now mm. um and and when i say i advocate for no governance i'm mostly thinking about protocols that are built on top of l1s because those you can just issue a new version of the protocol keep the old one running and incentivize people to go to your v2 or whatever that is but with um so i can see that you know dash has their form of governance that's allowed it to get through some of these contentious issues that that it come up and uh, there are other l1s with different governance there's tezos there's decred there's uh, the simple treasury model like zcash has um, and ecash i actually was in favor of the ecash proposal at the time and, and most people were. This was another case of, of sock puppets coming in and uh, changing everyone's opinion. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, there are people that were legitimately against it, but I talked to a lot of people behind closed doors, a lot of the influential people in the Bitcoin Cash ecosystem behind closed doors, and we had a reasoned discussion, and they were like, yeah, I think this is actually a good 10% treasury fee. And, yeah. and then when when it started to get heated, they all flipped because they were like, no, the community, the community doesn't like this. And I'm like, well, you are the community. And this, it was fine before until the mass of people um, gave yeah. their opinion. So that's the big thing with like explicit governance, as much as mm -hmm. I want it to be really rarely used, it's good to have because sometimes 
I mean, having been in like the decentralized space, like the crypto space for a very long time, I've seen so many astroturfing attacks. And obviously, I mean, the block size wars were a significant one of that because obviously a lot of the core developers of Bitcoin at the time got on board with the small block size. That's a slightly different story, but I mean, the Dragon's Den was a real thing. Like all these weird toxic Twitter accounts just showing up everywhere. Like that doesn't... There are toxic maxis today, but the the, horn, the cyber hornets, as Sailor likes to put them, were that was a special thing. That like the other side, the big block side, was very um, also opinionated, but didn't have that like didn't have the swarm. Just didn't. There was something different, clearly. And then I remember um, <laughs> on, on like much less intentional kind of things. Uh, of course, I remember a, a ton of drama behind. Not often, but every once in a while you'd have a very dramatic uh, decision proposal in the Dash community. And then when the votes run out, the votes are very stark. Like you're like, oh, you mean this isn't just like a 50-50 issue. This is like a 90-10 issue. And then I remember this last year with ThorChain, as soon as this whole uh, Tornado Cash thing kind of rolled out, um, they got cold feet hard on adding any asset that had some sort of a thing some sort of a privacy function. And as a result of all this drama and stuff and the official Twitter account tweeting all kinds of weird stuff, they implemented an actual like node vote system of like which is the next chain you want to add. They kind of like, you know, bolted on a quick little governance mechanism and quickly mm-hmm. found out that like 80% or 70% of the nodes were in favor of adding privacy-focused assets. Like, oh, that was all nonsense. That was all bullshit right there. Like, yes, the AstroTurf. So yeah, definitely the... Um, the that kind of element of things, the sock puppeteering and stuff, I've you know very familiar with with seeing that. Yeah, yeah, that was that was disheartening back in August or maybe it was September when Thorchain was saying they were pausing Monero. I was like, mm-hmm. like that the the entire reason for your existence is to add Monero like to trade against other assets to other chains and. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think, is that what Maya protocol is doing? Mm, sort of, that I know. And so much is um, up in the air about mm-hmm. the about that whole space. Um, I think Maya is mostly going to be like a collection of slightly different assets just so you don't have to maintain dual liquidity pools. And I think that well, they mentioned that they're going to try to add Dash in particular soon, but I don't think they're going to be... I think there's supposed to be a separate exchange, a, like a third fork that will be focused purely on privacy assets like Zcash and Monero and stuff. And so I don't know how it's going to... This is all... Like Maya hasn't launched yet even, so a lot of this is just completely up in the air. Um, but yeah, that's kind of... you know The point is to trade with stuff that you can't do elsewhere. And that was one of my criticisms of you know, Thorchain, which is a big a project I'm a very big fan of, um, was the governance decision. It was kind of like Nine Realms, the development team, just kind of deciding everything. And there were some people running the Twitter account and they promised some integrations for over, almost two years. And then at some point they got like cold feet and moved off in a different direction. And then it's like, well, community this, community that, well, we have this. And there's a lot of like funny business where the thing is someone always has the power. That's the thing is 
you can't say no one you can't say well it's it's up to the community well which people and how do you measure that there's it there's all and also who makes that decision and that's one thing with like you know uh i hope i don't annoy any zcash people by saying this but there's i'm i have to re-research how they arrived at it but i'm i'm not a hundred percent convinced that zcash has a perfect governance mechanism like when they decided to extend the founders or and they pulled the community and all this kind of stuff i'm sure they did the best they could but like how do you really know do you mm -hmm. really know that this is the way they want to go do you really you know how do you pull that and coin holder polling through some kind of a way is the best so far and mm -hmm. i think it'd be interesting to find if there's some better stuff like for example can you is can you assign immovable tokens of some sort based on activity. I know the NEM had some proof of importance thing with like older accounts, lots of transactions had more governance weight. It would be kind of interesting to see it if without doxing yourself, you could prove that you had spent the most in total fees over the years. And therefore that adds an extra weight in addition to your holdings because you're an active user and the way you, it, you prove that that's not spam is by actually spending fees and then that could be added to a weight. But then I don't know if that starts getting the complicated territory of like too much governance. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're just a lot of extra, their edge cases that are created. Like it's kind of like um, the same as in law, like the more laws, the more loopholes, the more mm -hmm. governance mechanisms or the more, even the more tokenomics mechanisms, tokenomic mm -hmm. mechanisms, the more features that you add, the more edge cases you create. And so all else being equal, simple protocols and simple governance is better. Yeah, as simple as possible. Uh, what do you think of, so obviously Bitcoin and Bitcoin's immediate variants have a hard-coded like limit of the token supply. And there's two other models that kind of strike out as a little bit different. Obviously there's millions of different models but like um ethereum with the what are the eip 1559 kind of setup where you have infinite inflation but deflationary so possibly you know because of the burn mechanism possibly deflationary that so first off what do you think of that model well my initial thoughts on that which i haven't made up my mind on if i like it or not but um it seems to mean that a lot of activity on the ethereum network uh, rewards everyone through the fee burn, uh, like every single Ethereum holder, which seems pretty good, except the actual nodes are the ones processing and putting up the, the capital for this, or, or a certain amount of capital, and they, there might be that the average just sit and hold kind of person might be doing a little bit of a free rider on that. I don't know. I don't, what yeah, do you think I, about that model? That was my initial concern with 1559 was that it wouldn't be that nodes might not be fairly compensated i don't think mm -hmm. that's the case um with the as far as like the infinite inflation model i'm uh, i'm skeptical as i was when it was you know the the, the claim in ethereum pre-eip 1559 was always there could be more than 100 million, but in practice, there will never be more than 100 million Ethereum. And then it gets up to like 107 million, 108 million, and uh, they implement 1559 or started to talk about it around then. And um, so I'm, I'm skeptical of that model. 
But uh, and additionally, I don't think it's terrible. I don't think it's the worst. Um, it's definitely different because Ethereum was pre-mined, so it wasn't like it was distributed. It was ICO'd, so yeah. it, it wasn't um, didn't didn't have the same purpose as like a proof of work coin. Um, nice. But uh, I do. I really like the. I think the tail emission model has fared really well for mm -hmm. um, coins that are supposed to be a medium of exchange. So like Monero and Dogecoin, mostly for other reasons. I mean, Dogecoin is like, as much as it is a joke, it's also got a really short block time. So people mm -hmm. want to use it to uh, transfer assets. And that's probably less, less of a, there's less value proposition there than there was yeah, a few course. years ago. But um, yeah, I mean the tail emission model. Yeah, exactly. I mean it's it's done all right, and uh, the tail emission model doesn't actually doesn't bug me too much. Um, and that that is one of the one of the directions that Bitcoin might go, and so that might be might be another topic um, oh, yeah. we could talk about if you want. Yeah. Well, as far as the tail emission thing, um, the idea on paper, like that, or spoken out loud i should say of infinite inflation is like help me i'm melting it's like just like a lot of people it just it sounds awful right yeah it does on the other hand kind of make sense from a certain perspective and the perspective of if you're if you're a fee-based model then users are paying everything for using it and that mostly makes sense some people do save and that's kind of the free rider problem, I guess. You just hold on to it, don't don't move it. You still have people being, you still have infrastructure securing your your funds, but you're not actually paying for them. So, within with a a tail emission, you're kind of paying a little bit for base security, and then if you use it in addition, it's like more. It's like kind of like you have a, you know, you have like a base membership, and then every time you buy extra things, you, that's extra. And so on that sense, it kind of makes sense. Um, the people get squirrely about not knowing the total ultimate supply. Um, I think that's, that might be more because of like the sound money gold bug attitude that came into, although I don't know what gold's entire, like infinite supply is going to be like, that's a little right. different. Gold like, has a tail emission. <laughs> yeah. Gold has a tail emission too. So uh, it's, it kind of seems like the tail emission might be one of the better models. Uh, if you're looking for like a, a saving and spending, if you're just looking at what's well, secure, so you'll feel comfortable of holding it and then spending it, then you don't really need, um, you don't really need it. But yeah. The, the tail emission seems to be the more I think about it pretty good. Now, um, I was it Doge was the first one to have it or which is the first major project to have it. I know Monero has become one of the poster children of the tail emission. Probably one of those early coins like Pure Coin or Russell Coin or whatever these other. I'm sure. I'm sure some of them had tail emissions. It, it probably wasn't Doge. That's the first one. Doge was what 2014. I think so, or maybe even before. I can't remember. It was really early on. Uh, yeah. 2013 maybe. Um, okay. Let me just check real quick. I I don't want to talk out my ass too much. Um, but the thing about the the tail emission is kind of like. Uh, it's, I know like Monero really focused on it. I think if I remember correctly, Dogecoin, um, 
Yeah, I mean, to- Dogecoin is the end of 2013, I think. Okay. So, like, just before 2014. Yeah, um, that makes sense. Right it definitely predates Monero on that sense. But, like, I think the tail emission... I think for Doge, it was meant so there was always going to be more and you're incentivized to share it around kind of thing. But, that was, yeah, that was the phrasing was, around it. I think it was... I mean, my impression of Dogecoin at launch was always to joke at the sound money meme, like to, to make fun of Bitcoin. It was like, mm-hmm. and there's, there's not, not only are there a hundred billion Doge or whatever the number is, it's like there are 5 billion more that are created every year. Um, and, and I think it was Jackson Palmer's way of trying to prevent this from being taken seriously, which um, ironically has, has led it to keep, to stay, yeah. to stay afloat. I mean, the fact that there are mining incentives for Doge is keeping it keeping it afloat. Yeah, it's pretty crazy the way that turned out. Um, yeah. But especially, I, I do think it is a, a subject that I'm going to re- visit as far as we talk about Bitcoin, is Bitcoin's uh, tail emission, mm-hmm. um, which probably makes the most sense from a let's not change anything point of view. Um, mm. But at the same time, I think that that's one of the most um, brand damaging kind of value proposition damaging kind of not not if you really think about it, but if you uh, at its face value, all of Bitcoin yeah. branding gets kind of destroyed with the tail emission and totally. only over 21 million. And like, say, there's got to delete all his stuff and like, you know, it's, just, <laughs> it's not it's ugly. I don't think they would do that. Yeah, I think. Um, and. Yeah, I mean that's that's one of those options that seems like the most practical that in a in a in a vacuum they might up, opt for, but I don't think the community would allow it. I think that is the last resort of any of the possibilities. Um, the the three possibilities are tail mission, and then you have increasing the block size, which has been tried and probably won't uh, might not go over too well. Uh, and moving to proof of stake. These are like the three kind of choices that Bitcoin seems to have right now about how to maintain, uh, how to pay miners for ongoing security in the Bitcoin network. Yeah, I would kind of posit that maybe proof of stake doesn't even solve it. It just makes the problem much temporarily less of a problem. But when enough inflation goes away, you still need fees and then there's still a capital opportunity cost to that. And then it's over time, like it still becomes much harder to attack because of the, obviously the stake, but it's still, it still ends up being a shrinking security over time unless you start kicking that fee, the fee revenue up. Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting one. There's a, um, the other one is a find a way of like increasing on chain fees per mm-hmm. transaction which I don't know how they would figure that out because people have always just routed around using the chain. That's kind of how they right. That's kind of how they did it. And that doesn't mean use L2. It means route around using the chain. Um, but yeah, probably that seems a little unlikely. Um, honestly, in my, like speaking of proof of stake though, I do think that adding a staked element to it, like for example, if you turned like lightning hubs into stakers and added like a second layer of security in addition to that that would absolutely solve the problem entirely because if all the money is moving off to l2 
then who if as long as l2 secures the chain then no one needs to care but then you start doing the whole proof of stake stuff and that's a branding problem you know honestly i think that one of the more realistic problem solvers problem solutions might be a block size increase and i know that seems crazy from our history but i do i think that at some point if you're like oh modest two two megabyte increase is okay or let's just put it to four i don't like that because we're it's still because like what is it moore's law with the the electronic like computing power and hardware and stuff getting better all the time i'm sure they could make some set something about well everyone can still run a node if you increase it to four megabytes or whatever that, yeah. that might be what they end up doing the problem would be that that won't give them enough fees like if you think about yeah. um how many megabytes that's going to be like let's say it's uh four megabyte block size with segwit so that's like uh what do they say that's a 12 megabyte block size essentially because mm -hmm. segwit's super compressed or whatever so 12 megabytes and uh, at one Satoshi per byte, then you have 12 million, what's that? 12 million Satoshis. So that's 0.12 BTC, which is significantly less than what they have now. And maybe, you know, let's say they're paying 10 sats per byte and you have 1.2 Bitcoin. And that's still kind of a lot lower. Um, and not to mention that's, that's like a $2 fee. I, I don't know what that would come out to right now. I'm, I'm, suspecting 10 satoshis per byte would be like a two dollar transaction fee and people are and they might be able to do that i could see some i could see some cases some scenarios where that makes sense the the best the best solution that i've heard so far has come from and i haven't completely vetted this but it's come from the stacks foundation so i talk a lot with maddie uh, Matty STX on Twitter. He's Matty Tokenomics. He uh, is the tokenomics lead at Stacks, which is Bitcoin's DeFi centric layer two. Yeah, and Stacks. I, I got um some demand to like put my NFTs on Stacks, but you know, it seems like an interesting solution. I haven't looked too deeply into it, but it seems like an interesting way of getting Bitcoiners into kind of like a. <laughs> an L2 shit coin, so to speak. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> criticizing by saying that. I'm just saying like a lot of people, a lot of big hardcore maxis don't like stacks. Right. Well, then that's the irony because stacks might be a sustainable solution for Bitcoin's security problem because it's merge mined with BTC. So you have people trying to mine stacks that would also be mining BTC. And if stacks became valuable enough and all of the DeFi stuff that's going on there became valuable enough, then, uh, then BTC would be safe at the base layer, or at least a little safer. There are still some edge cases and economic security concerns that come with having L2 assets secured on a not valuable or a not secure L1 chain, but um, yeah. that's the best that I've heard so far. Yeah, and that's the, the thing that's kind of interesting is um, the problem is like, so like the stacks chain itself like does anyone do transactions on stacks not like mm, uh, that's a good question they're working on native btc but i don't think they have like uh, a native btc transaction um it, they're not like lightning people are not using it to transfer bitcoin off chain if yeah that's what you mean. so 
it's kind of a, a funny enough. I do think that if Stax had a um, a Stax, I'm sure they have a Stax BTC in there somewhere, like a, a tokenized Bitcoin on Stax. I'm not, I don't, I'm 100 percent sure. I'm just guessing they probably do. But that if they just rebranded Stax to the Lightning Network, I think that that would literally solve. That would probably live up to all of the all of the mythos of Lightning that's been out there for so many years, and just like the security scales, the you know, it's easy to use because you can just send. You don't have to be like, well, do I have a liquidity path? Do I send too much here? You have to don't do all the nonsense you have to do with Lightning today. It would just be like the elegant solution, and because of Lightning's kind of like partially because of like the whole hard fork and like anti shitcoinery kind of attitude of Bitcoin. Um, it became that like lightning could have been such a, so much of a better solution, but instead it just became a, um, like a, whatever they could bolt on with as little as possible. And then the, how to make it work ended up becoming very complicated. Whereas I think the stacks kind of system could probably solve a whole lot of this, especially if it had been like debuted, like in 2019 or something, like way back when. I think it's the problem with Bitcoin. Bitcoin innovation is stifled by Bitcoiners because they, they're they just too stupid for their own good. And not, <laughs> not all of them, but like Bitcoin maximalists, the ones that are not, they're actively tearing, trying to tear down other systems. Like I feel like all the smart ones have left. And there's a few, there are a few left. There are a few smart Bitcoiners that I talk to and, um, and they have really, they have really good ideas like this stacks securing the Bitcoin chain, like brilliant. That would, that would be awesome yeah. if something was merge mined. But, um, but I mean, we've seen like with Taproot and like Rootstock, um, these projects just, they're smart, but they don't tend to go anywhere. And I think that's because they lack community support. Yeah, and that's why I, funny enough, like, I kind of, I didn't look too much into Smart BCH, a little bit, I mean, but then the problem with Smart BCH for Bitcoin Cash was the bridging was just entirely... Yeah, it was centralized. Centralized into one yeah. company, which I, I, I've been trying which to get... Which blew up. <laughs> yes. I've been trying to get information yeah. about exactly what happened, who was at fault, etc., but it just it blew up for whatever reason and then that kind of tanked the project unfortunately and now they're trying other ways but something like stacks i think could work really well on bitcoin cash because you could like the merge mine part would work out they already wanted to do the rest of things all you have to do is find out a good like trustless bridge between the assets they were already trying to merge mine things by saying or not merge mine but like say like oh well if you have a certain amount of hash rate then you can run a smart bch node which is kind of like well if you just have a merge mind sidechain sort of thing like then they both kind of it's like a symbiotic relationship like that's that's the right. way because that's the way to tie it all together sort of without yeah. making it like in like the same sort of a thing you know yeah yeah or without requiring a specific um a specific stake of, of another kind, you know, keeping it all in-house with, with that asset. The, the challenge that I see that I don't think people in the Bitcoin Cash ecosystem have properly considered is mm -hmm. that it is 
very cheap to reorg Bitcoin Cash. And if you have valuable assets on top of Bitcoin Cash, those are at risk. And so this is one of these economic security things that I've been thinking about a lot and looking for. I was looking for the ways that this might happen in the BCH ecosystem. For a while, there were some some vulnerabilities in the BSV ecosystem, which I suspect have been, have been taken advantage of in those hundred block reorgs that we've seen news about. But um, I have I haven't looked deep enough into that to parse all the transactions that went on. But um, yeah, that's I mean a, a big risk is like how do you secure L2 assets on an L1 that's borrowing security from that L2? And, uh, you know, going back to Bitcoin's security problem and how this, how to resolve it, one way might be to charge, uh, charge fees proportional to the value of the transaction. And that would completely destroy Bitcoin's, um, it, it would take away a lot of Bitcoin's credibility and the value proposition there, but um, I mean, that would Lightning be at does. least a way to salvage it. Yeah, yeah. So Lightning, I mean, Lightning, Lightning, I take issue with for other reasons. Like, have they solved the traveling salesman problem where you can route? I don't remember that one specifically. The problem okay. with Lightning is um, I think it's been relatively doable to wrap my head around the basic structure and the, the, the um, capital allocation issues it faces and some routing. But as far as like the particulars, there's like a new trick every week about like you got a trampoline payment, you got a submarine swap, <laughs> you got to loop in and loop out, you got all these other things. You got watchtowers. Wait, you don't need watchtowers. Now we have like, there's just hmm. so much going on. So I don't, which was the, the traveling salesman problem? Traveling salesman, to my understanding, is you route a transaction in one direction and then it's not available. I might be bastardizing this, but the problem that I always saw with the Lightning Network is that if you pull a balance from one channel, you have to instantaneously update all of the other channels. Otherwise, that balance might be double spent and you end up with failed transactions. So maybe they've done a lot of work. It's been three or four years since I've looked into the Lightning Network at all. But um, that always seemed like the biggest problem to me is that you can't can't keep track of all of the channel balances at scale. And so it forces centralization into the network and you end yeah. up with a hub and spoke model. And it, and from what I have seen of Lightning, that is the model that they have now where most of the payments are routed through large hubs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, a lot of advocates have said the same thing too, like admitted that it's a little, get a little centralized out there. Um, it just, it's hard to make it work without like, first off, reliable zero confirmation transactions and then big enough blocks you can make cheap enough on-chain payments to where if like every 10th payment is on-chain on the individual level, you can keep it decentralized. The problem just becomes like, it only really makes sense to have like large liquidity hubs to kind of taking care of that. And um, the thing is, uh, you're starting to have um, competition, though, and that's the thing. I like. I love one of the reasons I love DeFi so much, which I didn't care when it came. I just didn't have any interest in it really. Uh, but then I started to like wrap my head around what it meant, the implications, and DeFi in a certain 
sense might end up obsoleting the Lightning Network because, uh, like for example, the Thorchain right now has like um, a saver's fault for it's their you know their no um, no what do they call it impermanent loss risk um, like savings kind of earning option and on Bitcoin on later on BTC you can earn about what is it five percent APY right now um staking like staking, in lightning you no know, staking your just l1 bitcoin oh and sorry so, yeah and thorchain yeah. yes and so if you have like 10 oh. bitcoin in your lightning hub that you're using to manage channels and stuff like that excluding like you have to make enough money not just to cover the the transactions the on-chain fees and like the infrastructure costs but you have to make up the capital opportunity cost of what you could be in thorchain if you had it there instead so now all of a sudden the per transaction cost you have to do starts to go up and now all of a sudden lightning becomes expensive i mean i haven't paid under a cent for lightning i mean i don't use it i use like a couple dozen times a year i guess but like i don't pay under a cent ever these days because hmm. you know the the hubs that you have to go through need you know they need to make money somehow and it's not through like fractions of a cent per lightning transaction because people just aren't using it that much so yeah it's uh it's kind of interesting how that's kind of working out how um also um competition defi competition um can end up harming some proof of stake security models i don't think enough to make a difference really but like if you earn this much staking ethereum for ethereum security versus this much in this liquidity protocol over here yeah eventually they're they're in direct competition and so the amount right. that each pays goes up but also there's less total money securing the chain and right. i guess that's a good thing that proof of stake is so i guess economically secure because of how much how expensive it is to attack that you can afford to like lose a little bit of that but um, right yeah it's kind of crazy yeah that was my initial that was an initial concern of mine with with ethereum moving to proof of stake was because there were all these other yields available and you don't know necessarily how those yields are going to be um, competing with mm -hmm. proof of stake. Yeah, everything competes with everything for something else. And I kind of think that, for example, um, Litecoin has outcompeted Lightning so far. I mean, Litecoin seems to be, what is it, uh, 100,000 transactions a day or more. It seems to be the chosen alternative so far. I mean, there's a million cash coins and stuff, but that's like the one that's seeing the most, you know, reliable volume. You can kind of, you know, plot to payments specifically. It's so, yeah, it's kind of, I kind of love free market competition and what it ends up producing, even if it's inconvenient to me. It's just always pretty fascinating to watch. Yeah, definitely. I mean, at least there there is at least the additional benefit. There's kind of like the side benefit, even if you don't like lightning, that the experiment mm -hmm. has has happened and uh, that yeah. it can teach us how systems tend to centralize if you don't architect the incentives properly at the outset. Yeah, I love what I've learned from lightning. I would never take back my annoying times trying to run a node and stuff. Just the, the learning experience was definitely worth it, <laughs> you know. Yeah, well, it seems like it's a good time to start wrapping this thing up. Uh, where can people find more about you and what you do? 
Sure. Yeah. So I'm I'm available on Twitter at Eat Sleep Crypto, and I've got EatSleepCrypto.com has uh, you know my articles dating back to 2017 on mostly on crypto valuation and tokenomics, and then I'm available uh, on Twitter. Anyone can DM me. I'm uh, glad to collaborate to talk about these kinds of things. Love talking about tokenomics and um, ESCAdvisory.com is uh, where I have my business outposts. So we're doing tokenomics advisory and uh, valuations. Yeah, cool stuff. Well, before I completely wrap it up, I almost forgot. Uh, every time I have people come on the show, I give them a shiny NFT as a proof of work kind of way of saying thanks for, <laughs> for taking. So if you, as soon as you get me your either Polygon or Wax address, I don't know if you, you mess around with Wax a lot, uh, I've given you one of these. that You'd only be a guest on the show. That's the only way you get these. I, I don't awesome. These. And they get you into my Discord and Telegram channel and including like live super chats on these shows and stuff. So now you're in the in-club that mostly the plebes have to pay to get in. But since you earned your way on through proof of work instead of stake, there you go. So <laughs> just DM me an address and I'll get that sent to you. I'm honored. All right. Thanks, Joel. It was a pleasure talking with you today. Thanks for having me yeah, on. Likewise. All right. Thanks for watching, everyone. And everyone have a good one.